It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. He's going to have a look at, of course, the latest security news, including a very calm Patch Tuesday. And we'll talk about why it may not be a bad idea to use XP in a virtual machine. Just make sure you update it. All that and your questions and Steve's answers coming up next. It's a Q&A episode on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 472, recorded September 9th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 196. Security Now is brought to you by ShareFile. Enhance your workflow send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. And by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, your computer, or your mobile device for 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. And by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster, easier, and cheaper. Post your job to 50-plus job boards with one click. Try ZipRecruiter with a free four-day trial now at ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, your privacy, everything that you hold dear and sacred. Steve Gibson is here, the protector in chief. He's waving. Hi, Mom. <laughs> He's waving at us from his <laughs> fortress, uh, fortress of securitude. Ah, in beautiful yes. Irvine, California. It's good to see you. Steve. Having having watched your stream all morning long with the Apple announcement and all of that excitement, as soon as we get technical documentation on exactly how all this new stuff works from a security standpoint, things like Apple Pay, I'm sure we'll do a, a podcast to describe and, and explain once. Again, once we have the specs, uh, how they've achieved uh, what they apparently have. So, or if they have achieved well, it, right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, yeah, now they, now they, that white paper makes sense that they put out that you spent, we spent a couple of episodes talking about uh, Apple security. on that. Yeah. Yep. Now, you know, in, in the context of that, the they were, exactly, yeah, yeah, it's pretty yeah. clear. And they call it, talk about a secure store for your data and all of that stuff, stuff we've already looked at. So, well, and and if we're from from what little we know of Apple Pay, they anonymize the transaction so that they are able to assure the merchant that the the funds have been transferred, but the merchant knows nothing about you. And unlike like current credit card transactions, in fact, we'll be talking about the massive Home Depot breach here in a minute today. Um, where you're trusting the merchant with your data every single time you use your credit card, this is a much more secu- potentially much more secure model. And you know the the idea being it's sort of more like the PayPal model. You need to be big enough to like someone like Apple to be able to say, look, we're going to do this. And I mean, I saw that my bank Chase was there. Uh, that does my credit cards and uh, and uh, you know the major ones. I think they said they they covered like eighty three percent of 
of the transactions based on the, the collection of banks that they've worked out a relationship with. So we have a ways to go before these little pay, point, pay points appear everywhere, but we now have NFC in the phone. So Yeah, um, in a, in a yeah. way, this not, I mean, Apple can put this through because they have the clout in the U.S., right. maybe not in the rest of the world, but certainly in the U.S. But what's great is this makes it possible then for non-Apple NFC payments. I mean, once the infrastructure is in, it doesn't have to be Apple. And they can, they can lead the way, and everybody can start doing this. I think this is the beginning of the end of, of cash and even of credit cards. I hope it is. It's, it's also nice, too, that it didn't come before now because there's no way – I mean, as, as you were saying, we spent three episodes looking at the iOS 7 security model and the architecture of, of the hardware that they for security that they specifically put into the iPhone 5. Now that, of course, moves into the 6. And, and so my point is – had they tried to do this 10 years ago, we wouldn't have had uh, as mature an understanding of, I mean, the, the, like the over-the-top crazy need for security in order for this not to come out of the gate and stumble. And clearly Apple is mature enough now from, from their understanding of security, <clears throat> despite the fact that we have a lot of nude photos wandering around the Internet that apparently came out of uh, <laughs> iOS backups. Um, but, you know, I think that they, they – it, it, we're at a point where we know how to do this right. And from what little we know, it looks like the architecture is right. So, again, as soon as there's a white paper out, uh, we'll certainly be talking about it in detail. As, as it is – uh, we're the second Tuesday of the month. We know what that means. Uh, we have news about the Home Depot breach, which is massive. Uh, a little note about Comcast and uh, Google declaring war on SHA-1, which, well, it, it, even before I knew that we were going to have to have a relatively short and high-speed podcast today, I decided not to try to tackle that as just a news blurb, but to make it the topic of next week. And we'll, I'll, we'll explain why when we get to it. So uh, a good podcast. And this is a Q&A, number 196 today. I love it. I've got the questions. Steve's got the answers. Before we go any farther, though, let's talk a little bit about the best way to share files in business. If you're in business, you know that you, you, know, you send attachments all the time. Presentations, bills... Um, documents of all kinds, contracts. And uh, you've also heard us say many, many times, don't send email attachments. That's a really poor choice. Not only uh, do a lot of viruses get spread by email attachments, but of course, email's insecure. Those files are visible to anybody along the line. You know, you lose control the minute you press send. Share file is a secure way to share your files in business where you don't lose control. You can send files of almost any size. You, you can say who can open the file, who can download it, for how many times, for how long. And it syncs automatically, which is really nice. I have share files set up on my desktop here. And when I record uh, little audio bits for the – this is what I use it for. I share audio bits with radio stations for the radio show. When I record those ads or those bumpers, I just save them to the folder. They get a notification that I saved it there, and they could just go and open it. So I, it even eliminates the email, which is really, really nice. I use ShareFile all the time, even to share pictures with people for personal use. ShareFile gives you control, no bounce backs. It's as easy to use as email. It's even easier at the other end because the person you're sending it to gets a secure link. They click on that link. They see a big download button. They see information. They see your company logo. 
which is very reassuring that you know it's 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 branded with your uh, you know logo and, and so forth. I want you to visit sharefile.com. If you see at the top there, very top of the screen, it says podcast listeners. There's a little microphone there. If you do me a favor, you click that and you enter in security now as the offer code. All one word, security now. And then pick your industry because ShareFile is HIPAA compliant, compliant with regulations in the financial services industry. So pick the industry and they'll customize it for the industry you're in. Graphic design, government, food service, legal, nonprofits. It goes on and on and on. Once you pick the industry, select continue and you've got 30 days free of the best file sharing system anywhere. ShareFile.com. Click the microphone at the top of the page and use our offer code. One word, security now. We are big users. We believe in it. I think you'll like it, too. Sharefile.com. All right, Steve, so, let's start with the news. Uh, we had a tame second Tuesday of the month, comparatively. Um, actually, the tamest one we've had in a long time. There was only one critical um, vulnerability in – this is a publicly disclosed remote code execution, but – not apparently in the wild yet, so it doesn't get the zero-day mark. Uh, and this is based on IE, so all versions of IE need to get updated. Uh, this fixes that one critical, and it's a remote code execution, meaning that if, you know, as Microsoft says in their boilerplate, someone needs to trick you into visiting a, a malicious website with a with an unpatched version of IE, and then uh, you are potentially in, in trouble. And that... that, um, that uh, set of patches also deals with 36 privately reported less critical vulnerabilities. So they fixed a bunch of IE things. Then there was, but the, only that one um, one uh, vulnerability that was critical. One important .NET uh, vulnerability. They called it a denial of service, which doesn't mean you know the way we're used to talking about it, like a flood of traffic. That's sort of the generic term where, like, someone can make something crash. And it's like, oh, well, look, it crashed, so it doesn't work. Um, and this is weird. Again, not not anything anyone really needs to worry about. If you have, for some reason, installed and registered the ActiveServerPages.net system, ASP.net, under IIS on your machine, then apparently then that makes you vulnerable if there's some way to, for the bad guys to access that. So I presume that means you're exposing your server to an intranet um, or I guess if you're really crazy to the internet. Uh, so, uh, but again, all it means is I guess they can crash something. So uh, that's, they call it Microsoft mark that one important. Um, and then there's a, an elevation of privilege, um, problem that only affects Windows 8 in, and that was found in the Windows task scheduler. And apparently if if somebody is able to log on locally to a vulnerable machine with valid logon credentials and then do something to Windows task scheduler, there's a way for them to get elevated privileges for their session. And this closes that down. So, you know... Time to update, as usual, but uh, not anything breathtaking. Um, however, we learned it was a week ago there was a rumor that uh, about a credit card breach. And I think I might have actually 
first learned of it from a buddy of mine who is a home improvement guy and spends a lot of time going back and forth between Home Depot and his home uh, because they alerted their customers to something they were investigating, yet they were warning everyone that there was a problem. Well, it turns out that it, it is a massive credit card breach using the, believe it or not, a version of an updated version of the same malware that got Target in that famous huge Target breach um, in last December. Um, so, you know, we're coming up on a year that it's been. Um, uh, Home Depot is also using XP embedded, as was Target. So Home Depot didn't make any changes, apparently, to their system um, despite being a large retailer with the same point of purchase systems that Target was using. Um, so this um, uh, black POS malware variant got in. Now, the damage is extreme because a ton of data was exfiltrated. Brian Krebs has been on this from the beginning, you know, and we've talked about Brian's work. He's he he spends a lot of time down there and in, in the dark underbelly of the internet, and um, so he reported that uh, despite Home Depot's quick claim that no credit card pin data was stolen, uh, and that actually appears to be correct. Multiple financial institutions were reporting to him at, at his request that they're seeing a steep upswing over the past few days in fraudulent ATM withdrawals. So after some more research, we know, we know what's going on. Um, enough data was stolen to give the bad guys the ability to convince the banks that they're the legitimate card owner, and then reset the pin. So um, people got their uh, card numbers, the full name, and the city, the state, and the zip was lost from Home Depot. Um, and, and, and again, what that allows with some research is for, for people then to, to use Often the banks automated systems. So they're not having even talked to a human being. Banks have have you know aut automated call handlers where you just use your uh, touchtone keypad to enter the requested data. And by th there's enough information that um, they're able to uh, essentially reset the pin to something they know and then go to ATMs and pull cash out. So. Uh, and, in fact, Brian reported that he'd heard from the manager of a large unnamed West Coast bank that had lost more than $300,000 in two hours yesterday, meaning Monday of this week. We're recording this on Tuesday. So on, on September 8th, yesterday, $300,000 was transferred on through, through fraudulent withdrawals in two hours due to pin fraud on multiple debit cards that had all been used recently at Home Depot. So, you know, a, another uh, big bad breach. And, uh, you know, once again, unupdated Windows XP embedded. Not like this was a zero-day flaw. These are systems which had, had not had updates 
for a year. So this, so this malware is using a well-known exploit, but people don't think of these things as being PCs. They think of them as, you know, being credit card terminals, despite the fact that it's got, you know, a full function, very powerful uh, OS embedded in it, which, you know, was their first mistake rather than using something obscure, you know, a, a like a, a traditional real-time operating system rather than a commercial, um, you know, w- Windows desktop system. But it's less easy to develop for those. You can't program those in Visual Basic the way you can Windows. Um, also on the news, uh, I just saw this sort of people were upset that Comcast's Xfinity Wi-Fi public hotspots were performing an on-the-fly JavaScript injection of random sites that people were using. So um, a, a, a tech reporter was, was using Comcast's, Comcast's Xfinity Wi-Fi public hotspot and noticed a banner sort of run across the bottom of his screen a couple times. And he was savvy enough to say, okay, wait a minute. And he captured the the um, the source of the page and took a look at it and found that Comcast was injecting into this page their own JavaScript. And so, you know, while you could argue, I'm sure in the terms of service that the person probably clicked through, Comcast said, oh, yeah, you know, we reserve the right to embellish well, the pages. Far be it for me to defend Comcast. <laughs> But they're doing it every seven minutes, and it's not an ad. It says you're on Comcast Wi-Fi. Okay. It's to let you know where you're getting this Internet access from. And that's okay, what Comcast so- said. What we're doing is because people are using this you know, nationwide open Wi-Fi network we've made, we think that they need to be notified that they're on it, and that's what we're doing. They're not putting an ad in there yet. I mean, if they do, then that would be bad. But I don't okay, think well, this is so okay. bad. Well, okay, so I don't disagree with you, but from a from a technology standpoint, first of all, many people do disagree with you. Um, oh, I know. But, you know, those, those are the knee-jerk, you know, security guys who, who believe that it's like, like there's a, an ethical uh, – an, an, an ethical uh, breach if – the user receives something that the site they're visiting didn't send. So, I mean, this is a, a an injection of executing script. And, of course, this is blockable if you're over HTTPS. And so what I was g- getting from our listeners about the story was yet another reason why you want to be HTTPS and not H, just HTTP, because Comcast would not be able to inject this. Um, well, wait a minute. They're the Internet service provider. Right. They could break HTTPS. They could break SSL and do it. Um, in order to do that transparently, they you, they you would have to accept a certificate from them right. so that they were then decrypting your your right. security. Right. So and and, and which would be even worse, I understand, and they're not doing that. Yeah. But other yeah. ISPs do this. This is not an unusual thing to do. And remember, you're you're using they're your ISP during this time. Right. So if right. they and, wish and, and to, I'm, they I'm could. Sure, I'm sure in the terms of service, it says you know we reserve the right to do this. Yeah. I, I'm I'm you know 
It's well, it's as no soon as they the serve case. ads, I'll get just as up in arms as anybody, and I understand the security <laughs> issues as well. But I can yeah. understand why. I mean, this is you know they're they're popping it in just to say, hey, don't forget you're on Comcast right now, right? Um, okay, and so and as we didn't have a lot of news this week, however, Google really upset certificate authorities. Um, we've discussed how last year Microsoft announced that in 2017, so and this was this was in 2013, late 2013, Microsoft said we're no longer going to honor. SHA-1 certificates four years from now. Um, Google has taken the position that, and publicly and with amid a huge amount of controversy, that they don't want to see the same foot dragging that they saw, that we saw with the MD5 hash signatures occur with SHA-1. So Google has said that two months from now, in November of 2014, they're going to start putting pressure on SHA-1 certificates by noting in the user interface, by changing the UI. And in fact, what you get is a little yellow triangle if you're using a certificate that has certain characteristics. And and I want to, I mean, this is a really interesting controversy because it's possible to see their side. It's also, but, but, the, but the certificate authorities have really been vocal and I, I think made some great points. So that's going to be our topic for next week. I, I don't want to, I, I want to do this interesting issue some justice by, by giving it full coverage. Uh, and so that's our topic for next week, unless, you know, <laughs> the sky falls between now and then. Which can always happen in this business. Uh, it does. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to mention, I made a mistake uh, in stating that USB was not differential communications. Um, I think it may have been in the context of ethernet which is differential uh, and we have a, uh, we have at least one question about that in today's q and a um, usb is four conductors and and i know better because i remember i mean i've i've built usb peripherals before my my little keto flute uh, used used a usb interface that i designed uh, the four conductors are 5 volt power and ground and then it's a it, it's a basically a bi-directional time-shared USB that runs in a master-slave mode where the master is able to is is able to use the both conductors in an outgoing direction and then release them for use in the other direction. So that's the way the technology works, not as I said, one going in one direction and one going the other direction. So thank you to the people who brought that to my attention. I, I know better and just misspoke. Uh, and then uh, just a, a, an interesting, in, in the context of a Q&A, I found a, a question from Cedric McGraw in Mont, Moncton. Moncton. Can, Moncton. Uh, what's NB? Canada. New Brunswick. New Brunswick, Canada. He said to both of us, hello, Steve and Leo. 
He says, I'm a longtime listener and think the show is fantastic. I'm a high school IT teacher, and I incorporate your show into my classroom every week. The students love talking about security issues. I've got a quick question about Spinrite. Is there any benefit to running Spinrite on an empty drive? For example, if I use DBAN on an older drive, is there any advantage to running Spinrite before installing the OS? Thanks for the great education you provide your listeners week after week. Uh, and, and so to answer uh, Cedric's question, yes, um, a substantial advantage. And many people use Spinrite not only on older drives that they've used DBAN on or perhaps wiped the drive, but even on new drives. Um, it's, per, it's probably not as necessary as it once was because drives are now smart and are able to deal, as, as we've spoken of in the last couple of weeks, with, with surprise encounters of defects on the fly. It used to be before drives were smart, you would run Spinrite because it was the brains that would handle dealing with defects that were encountered. Then the drive was sort of freed up from being smart and didn't have to be. Still, um, it makes sense because we talked about how Spinrite, you know, the, the, the drive doesn't just know that there are problems out on its surface. It, it's not psychic. It need, the only way it knows there's a problem is when it encounters one trying to properly and correctly read the data back from the drive. So, so Spinrite works with the drive in order to show it problems. And that's, as, that's probably more useful on an older drive that you're recycling than on a brand new drive. But many of Spinrite's users routinely give, it a, give a brand new drive, even a brand new drive, a pass through Spinrite, knowing that it, it's a much better way to sort of bring the drive current. Notice that almost nobody actually formats drives anymore. The so-called quick format isn't a format. All it does is put the the file system header essentially on the front of the drive and then you begin to fill up the drive. If if you ever do a long format, that's a mistake you don't make twice because on on drives these days, it takes I mean hours. Out I mean it makes Spinrite look fast. It takes you know the the, the full format is so slow that no one does it. So so running Spinrite on the drive sort of is is really your first real contact with the drive's surface that allows the drive to 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 quickly remap and and hide and deal with any defects that may be there before you begin filling it up with data. So, absolutely a good thing to do. We're going to uh, take a break. I got questions, you got answers? Yep. Let's uh let's uh, do a little Q&A with Mr. G, but first Let's talk a little bit uh, about our sponsor, the folks at IT Pro TV. This is the show made for IT Pro TV and uh, uh-huh. and all of its potential customers. If you're listening to the show, chances are you have some interest in uh, IT and in uh, understanding it, getting better at it. Maybe you even are in the business of IT, or you'd like to be. ITPro.tv slash security now is the place to go to find out about this wonderful service that'll help you learn everything you need to know to become an IT professional. Get your certificates, tune up your skills. It's interesting, uh, since we've started doing the ads for IT Pro TV, a lot of uh, businesses, corporates, 
you know, IT departments and companies have gotten involved. Amazing response from corporate IT departments because they want subscriptions for their team members to make to help them get better, to help them get the certs. Uh, it's just a great solution. I want you to visit itpro.tv/security now and uh, browse the course library. You'll see the kinds of things you can learn at IT Pro TV. They've got security certs from ISC Squared. In fact, Adam Gordon, who teaches those, is he wrote the book on security, perhaps one of the best-known guys in the business. He hosts those shows. There are courses on Microsoft. In fact, that's probably the the biggest uh, selection of courses there, MCSA, MCSE. Uh, they've got A-plus certifications, Cisco, CompTIA, Project Management, Apple, Mac Integration Basics, Mac Management Basics, Microsoft Office, Everything you need to become better at your job is at IT Pro TV. There, there's Tim visiting uh, the studios. Tim and Don were fans of Tech TV and then of Twit, and they said you know, they had been teaching folks how to get these certs for many years. And they said, you know, it would be really cool if we if we uh, if we offered something like Twit for people um, who want to get IT certs. And that's how IT Pro TV was started. It's a really great solution. I highly recommend it for anybody who wants to know more about uh, the world of IT, who wants to get a better job. They're organizing their uh, library by exam, exam objectives, which makes it really easy to find the stuff you're looking for. You can even just study for a specific question or specific chapter. Because they do it live with a chat room like we do, There's it's engaging. It's fun. You could play it on your tablet your computer and yes they have a roku app so you can watch it on the big screen in fact i know a lot of people just leave it on all the time that stuff gets just sinks in even if you're already studying with a book or enrolled in a technical degree or a certification program this is a great supplement and if you get a year subscription you can even download the shows keep them on your uh, tablet and you know take them everywhere one low monthly price gives you all access membership with daily updates it's a lot less expensive than a study guide or going to an IT boot camp, and it's fun. Plus, they've got things like, well, they've got this, the, the sample measure-up practice exams. That's worth 80 bucks right there just so you could take the test before you take the test. Uh, they have virtual machine sandbox lab environments so you can actually you know, play with servers and set them up and configure them and screw them up harmlessly. <laughs> It'll work with any HTML5 browser. So if you don't have you know, Windows Server... Or even Windows. You can still do it. I love IT Pro TV. They have just done a great job, and I want you to try them today. Normally $57 a month, $570 for the entire year. But uh, as a thank you to Security Now listeners, if you sign up now and use the code SN30, SN30, you're going to get 30% off for the life of your account. Now it's less than 40 bucks a month or $399 for a whole year. Forever. This is a good deal. ITPro.tv slash security now. Visit them, browse around, take a look at it. And if you decide to buy, use the offer code SN30, and you'll get 30% off for life. ITPro.tv slash security now. All right, I have questions. Steve has answers. He should. He prepared the questions. <laughs> You know, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I did it last night because I knew we were going to have a busy morning yeah. watching Apple do all of their well, stuff. You know, one thing I really admire about Steve, most of these shows and most of us will answer anything off the cuff without any research, best of our ability. 
I do, I've made a living doing that for 30 years. <laughs> Steve likes to actually research them, come up with the right answer, that kind of thing. He's Good crazy. <laughs> Question one, Tom Rhodes, Houston, Texas. He says, and this is going to be a battle little rage for a while. No, <laughs> ground loops are not a problem with Ethernet. So this goes back to the question that we were talking about. Somebody yeah. wanted to bring Internet access to a shed 100 feet behind the house. We said just put it in conduit and Ethernet. And then somebody said, oh, no, the difference between the ground voltage potential on each building, because it's inevitably going to be different, it's going to cause a problem. And one of them is going to draw power from the other and the whole thing's going to fry and you're going to go to hell. And right. He says, so, no, no, no. He says, if something caused the voltage potential between two endpoints to exceed, you know, like 1,500 volts, like a lightning strike, okay, it would jump the isolation gap and cause bad things to happen. But but there is a trans the, – the 10 base T has a, is a transformer coupled with, tip, which is coupled with it, which provides isolation up to 1,500 volts. Nothing to worry about. A lot of other people said, you know, you can have separate ground for the Ethernet. You don't have to worry about that. There's ways and ways. Yeah, so I just wanted to I wanted to mention, first of all, a, a, a very good engineer friend of mine immediately responded that Ethernet is transformer coupled. Right. And and so so the idea is um a so what what that really means is if each end is transformer coupled then then the the wires which are running between the ends each go to one side of a transformer they're sort of that means that the wires themselves are just are floating without any reference to anything without ground reference and and that is not w without being relative to ground. And this is what I was talking about when I was talking about a differential signal where you have this notion of, of a differential versus a common mode voltage. And so, so the concept is one end on the other side, on its side of the transformer, induces through magnetism a current in the, uh, in the outgoing side of the transformer, which which creates a, a a flow of current through the ethernet to the to the receiving side transformer which then induces a magnetic field that causes a current in the in the inner side the sort of the receiving side of of the of the other endpoint and so the idea is that the the actual instantaneous relative voltage of the two sides doesn't matter. And and now that's true up to some point, the so-called breakdown voltage or isolation voltage of the transformers. You know, if, if lightning struck one end, you could imagine that, you know, the lightning would get across the insulation of the transformer, then you'd have a problem. So so anyway, I, I just, I did want to, to, to come back to this to sort of clarify that that as long as Ethernet is reliably transformer coupled, then you really should be able to have a you know relative offset of ground between the two ends without there ever being a problem, and even have them moving relative to each other because because it, it's the it's the current flow through each end 
both transformer coupled that is that's what carries the signal not the their instantaneous voltage so thank you tom um and uh you know it's difficult to understand then given this why people are having and reporting problems with ground differentials between endpoints with ethernet because transfer transformer coupling should eliminate that completely even if if it's changing a lot why do i feel like we probably haven't heard the last of this <laughs> and just use fiber optic and then you don't have to worry about it yeah. use plastic <laughs> something that doesn't conduct uh, yeah there, i just know there's gonna be another it's gonna this is gonna go on for a while there's something about these things because they don't really matter they're very small potatoes but it's easy to have an opinion about it and it just it just it's this is the kind of thing that can rage back and forth for years oh and and i've i believe me uh, this is the uh, we we're looking at the summary of a mailbag oh, okay. full of people <laughs> saying oh that's, you have to have transformer <laughs> coupling because even you know the ground differentials between the third floor and the fourth floor even there is enough you know blah yeah, blah blah it's that like, makes oh, sense okay. yeah you know, this would be a problem everywhere the wind blows across the top of the tower and the electrostatic charge created. Blah, oh, okay, yeah. You know, so. Is it powered, this transformer, or is it just some sort of passive thing? Yeah, no, it's passive. It is literally, it's two completely separate coils of wire wrapped around each other. That's what they and do. So, uh, so you drive the coil on one end, and that induces a current flow in right. the on the other side and i mean and so it's really it, it it's specifically because so that you have this dc isolation yet you're coupling the ac signal across this this insulating gap and so it, it's an isolation transformer i should know uh, this because of course this is all part of antenna construction and you passed your license every yes. ham probably <laughs> is screaming at me right now i'm a bad ham i told you that no memory at all. Hey, you got the job done. You got your <laughs> I got license. the license. That's all. I and if you remember your call letters, then you're fine. Yeah. And and if if I'm ever going to put up an antenna, I ain't going to do it. I'm going to have somebody who knows what they're doing. Dude. That's right. A little more to the left. <laughs> that's, that's my job. That's right. Perfect. Need, it needs to be wife compatible. <laughs> Actually, we have three acres. I could put it anywhere. I got, in fact, that's, I'm thinking, looking at these you eucalyptuses. You actually do have a South 40. You I, actually do I have totally a South 40. I totally could put up an antenna, yeah, yeah at this point. Yeah. Barry in central Georgia, he's wondering about something called ATA Secure Erase. Stephen Leo, longtime listener, big fan, yada, yada. I work in the defense industry as an IT and network security guy. When disposing of old hardware, laptops, etc., one of the things I do is erase the hard drive of the surplus equipment for obvious reasons. I used to use a block wiping program, DBAN or the like, on a DOD short cycle, which is three passes of pseudo-random changing data followed by a pass of all zeros. However, I've noticed that many newer drives have the option of a drive firmware-based secure erase and enhanced secure erase functions, SE and ESE, respectively. When I've tried them, the erase times are typically half that of using a block wiping program. However, documentation of SE and ESE is hard to find. Can you shed any light on these functions? So I, I always, whenever I see enhanced secure erase, it make, I get a chuckle out of it because it's like, wait a minute, was secure erase Apparently not. secure or, or not? <laughs> it's not. Because it's like, it's it's like they, no, no, this one is the really secure one. 
it's enhanced <laughs> as opposed to the one that we were selling you before. It's like Apple, you know, yeah. only when they have NFC did you then, see now it's the best yeah, thing ever. Now everybody got it. But have last, it. Yeah. you know, yesterday mm -hmm. and not so much. Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, there is no documentation which the drive manufacturers offer. The only thing we know is that the secure erase functions, and that's plural, are NIST approved. So I don't know what that means. Um, um, the difference between secure erase and enhanced secure erase is that there are, there are, it's, it's possible using the ATA specification to create some hidden regions on drives where, where with like, if you ask double pretty please, then you're able to get access behind this barrier. Um, but otherwise, the drive reports a size smaller than it actually is. Secure erase doesn't go past the barrier. It only erases the obvious visible part, enhanced secure erase blasts right through those those uh, sort of hidden special areas. Now, the other thing that a really secure erase in the firmware can do potentially is, for example, erase the spared out sectors. One of the controversial things, we, you know, we talk about this all the time when we talk about, you know, how can you really erase a drive or even a thumb drive because we all know that that sectors are being removed from use when they're no longer reliable. And those could contain some sensitive data, which has sort of been taken away from our access. The address that we were using, that we used to be using to access that sector, now accesses a different sector. And it's sort of like it's in hyperspace. You, you can't get to it from here. So what the firmware-based erases could do is be smart and also go wipe those. But again, we're just sort of having to take everyone's word for it. The, the manufacturers say, oh yeah, we used to offer secure erase. Now we've enhanced that. And the NIST says it's good enough. So take our word for it. So this is one of those places where, you know, they're just saying it works. And, oh, it's it can be half the time that is twice the speed because it doesn't have to transfer any data. It you just sort of say erase yourself and you know come back in a while um, and actually you are able to query and ask how far along you are. That allows operating systems and secure erase tools to give you a progress bar. But that allows the drive, for example, never to skip a beat. Um, even with Spinrite 6.1, where I'll be doing 32 megabyte transfers, which is the largest transfer available through the ATA interface, um, uh, you know, even the, the, the SATA interface, you just can't, there's no way to give it a larger sector count than 32 megabytes worth. That's 64K sectors, 16 bits worth of sector count. Uh, is the largest available. Um, even there, at the end of one of those transfers, we'll miss a rev or two 
asking for the next block, let alone processing the data. So this just sort of says drive, go offline, and come back empty. And so it can really scream if we trust that it's really done the job. So that's sort of a mixed blessing. Maybe do both. Do a do a D-ban or when when I offer that feature, it'll be way faster than D-ban, probably not much slower than the, than the drive by itself. I, I think I'll be able to get up to about the, the, the secure race speed. Although I would argue that it's certainly possible that the firmware could do a better job than any application side software because the firmware could get in to those dark areas that have been that have been essentially taken out of the the normal drive space. Corby Reno Nevada is going to solve the email security problem. Phew. Oh, Corby, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Steve, I just finished listening to the episode about email security. I think this problem might already be solved sometime in the past. You talked about Threema. I use it now and I love it. It seems like Threema, or an approach like it, could be the core of a secure email system. It already has the end-to-end security and store and forward approach. It's a it's a, a secure text messaging program we might uh, parenthetically yep. add here. Doesn't seem like it would uh, be that difficult to turn it into a full-blown email system. Your thoughts? Well, so he's right. Um, the problem is, as you note, Leo, it's not email. And the other problem is... It puts the burden, it's not a big burden, but it's more than no burden, on the users to exchange keys. And and remember, this is the one that's got the three levels. It's got three spheres. And I think you can either be, uh, uh, you can be like yellow, orange, or green. I don't right. remember what the colors right. were, actually. Right. And it's not until the 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 client the threema clients physically see each other displaying their qr codes into which is encoded the certificate that you merit the three green dots meaning we're absolutely certain about the identity of each other and so so this is really the problem it's not the that we don't have the crypto technology it's the plumbing of dealing with authentication, making sure someone didn't intercept your identity and substitute their own, in which case you'd, you'd be sending, you'd be encrypting data for the interceptor and not for for, for the, the person you were expecting to. So it's, and it's not that we don't have solutions, it's that, as, as we talked about last week, it's really looking like email kind of ought to just be left alone. Let email be insecure and we know people are working on really terrific wholly new designed systems to give us an email like solution that really is secure because for example as as we also said last week there's still the metadata it's often interesting to people who are nosy who you are exchanging email with even if they can't see into it and you know, the older systems like PGP never attempted, n- never claimed to protect you from the leakage of who you were talking to. They were only creating an envelope into which no one could see, but they could still see who, you know, the, the to and from address on the envelope. Oh, and necessarily because, yeah, it's like yeah. you got to know where that you're going. Then. 
Right. Yeah. And, and really, when you think about it, protecting the metadata is tricky. Because, you know, we've even seen the Tor system that is all about anonymizing. But if you have, if you could see all of what Tor is doing, you could, and you saw things going into it and coming out of it, then you might be able to match those two events up and essentially use, you know, that form of metadata to de-anonymize who was communicating with whom. So, you know, the internet wasn't designed to hide that level of 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 communication. And so it it takes being clever, like randomly changing packet sizes and deliberately introducing delays through the network so that so that people are unable to are unable to see into uh, what's actually going on. I kinda like your point, which is let email be email. There are plenty of use cases where you don't care who sees it or who knows what you're doing. Exactly. And the advantage of an open system like that is it's it's open, it's easy, it interoperates. The other thing, yep. I guess, it's three months. It's not open source, is it? Uh, I, don't I don't think so. Think so. No. So I'm not going to trust it. So here's I, this is the other thing. We were t- you were great on Twiat yesterday talking about all of this stuff, and um, I I I spouted my Steve Gibson lesson, which is. That if you want stuff to be private in the internet, there's only one way to do it. That's encrypt it before it hits the internet with a key only you have access to. End-to-end encryption and transport, encryption on the on the cloud server, and encryption on the way back. And and it's trust no one. That's the phrase you came up with, which means only you have the keys. Right. Not, not a good solution for email by <laughs> at all. No. Uh, but um, I guess we could have some sort of symmetric key technology or some sort of key exchange if we – well, public key works. Well, I think what we're what we're probably going to see is we're going to see a raft of these instant messaging systems, which really are secure. Things like off the record protocol and Threema protocol. And, 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 and by the and, way, OTR is open source. Yes, and so I yes. like that. Yes, and and ha- and incorporates things like perfect perfect forward secrecy right. that were never part of the original PGP design. Um, and then I think, I, I think as you were saying, email will just be email, and we'll end up with a, a, a new system to, to solve the to, to solve the need for uh, something else. There's lots of stuff that we send. That it doesn't matter if the government or anybody else saw it, and yep. and and email works really well for that. In fact, most of the stuff I use email for is public. Might as well be. Yep. Nothing wrong with that. Yep. Uh, question number four from Eric. He's he's wondering and worrying about a new Windows XP installation. Hey, Steve, I have to look at some old data that's going to be replaced with a newer system, but the application I need only runs on Windows XP. Since I no longer have a current running version of XP, I'm going to have to create a virtual machine and install XP in there. Now, usually when I install a new operating system, the first thing I do is go out and get the Windows updates, but... Since XP is no longer supported, and there are theoretically unpatched exploits out there, I'm thinking it's not even worth the time. I'll just stay offline with that virtual machine and only use it to review the old program I need to upgrade. Your thoughts? Really bad idea. Oh. Really bad. I was going to say go ahead. Oh. what What Eric is suggesting is that he takes an operating system which is... More than what? Twelve years old was it in two thousand one yeah. that XP happened? Yeah, and 
and use it without changing it. Um, even though Microsoft has stopped patching it, they have been patching it for 13 years. Um, by all means, take advantage of that. I turned one of my own Windows XP machines on, a, a, a sort of a, a, a tablet installation that I use for some purposes um, that I hadn't had on for like six months. It had 113 updates, which it received a couple days ago. So even though Microsoft isn't moving it forward from last April, they were for 12 years. And we absolutely know that they're, that the internet is crawling with stuff that would love to get at, get at a an original install of Windows XP. So definitely worthwhile installing from scratch. You know, use Windows XP SP3 or install Windows XP and then then install SP3 if you don't have one that's already got a, uh, the SP3 rolled into it. Um, and then, you know, run through just one or, or, well, however long it takes or how many iterations till it says there are no more updates available. That one, I think you can safely use because then you're, you're using something that is current as of when Microsoft stopped supporting it. And as we know, the, 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 the XP world hasn't collapsed. There have been no, you know, cataclysmic no, true. Uh, predictions about XP. And we're now, you know, six months along. A uh, couple of things. So th your point is that they are, even though they're not making new patches, all the existing patches will be applied if you do Windows Update to a new yes. install of XP. That's good to yes. know. I did not know that. But yes. secondarily, he says, I'm not going to go online with XP. Do I need? Why would I need to patch it? Yeah, you're now you're right. If 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 the, if you're really not online, if you if you set up the virtual machine so that. Um, so that it doesn't have access to the internet, and 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 as Eric said, it's just for running some application that is XP only. Yeah, th then I agree, you could save yourself the time. But by all means, make sure you uh, you remember yeah. that that thing has You're never a time been bomb patched. There. Yeah, because because <laughs> it is just it's a magnet for yeah. all this stuff. Crawl. I mean, I mean, remember all the problems we were having before Service Pack 2 when they finally turned right. the firewall on. Right. Oh my lord. I mean, you know, Code Red and Nimda and and MS Blast and I mean, it was just it was crazy back then. That actually was a watershed moment in security. <laughs> the day they that Service Pack 2 came out and they turned yes. on the firewall on XP, that was a, that was kind of the turning point in some ways. Yes, it made a big it made difference. A huge difference. So, yeah. yeah, you'd have to make sure. And you can in virtual machines. You can disable the network interface. Right. So you can do that. It does. Right. You're right, though. It makes me nervous because you're on a machine that probably does have Internet access. It yeah. Makes, it makes me a little nervous to have that there. You know what I would do is is I've had machines like that. I set the wallpaper or, or the background to bright red. Yeah. So it's like it's yeah. it's it's like giving me an on always having a reminder yeah. that this is you know because it's it's so easy to just like oh click Oops. IE or right. oh, well I mean oh my god can you imagine using IE six on on unpatched <laughs> that's, Windows that, XP? okay that's crazy talk <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point you'd be using I don't even know if you'd have IE six on there. You'd have oh. whatever the Internet Explorer was that came out when XP came out. Oh. That's like, what, IE3? I don't even know might what been, that is. might have been three. I remember three. <sighs> I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, or air gap the, the hardware, too. Run it in a VM and air gap the hardware. Then you're safe. But you're right. Yeah. It's, it's just, 
It's I, a time I, bomb. I, I, I just bring it current. And then, yeah, and then you have an XP you can use for other things, right. too, and not just have to be completely afraid point. of it. XP, Bill in Michigan says, was IE5 originally. Ah, yes. <laughs> ah, good right. old IE5. <laughs> Make sure you turn on active desktop for lots of fun. Stuart Ward in Reading, United Kingdom, one of the designers of cellular 3G security. Wow. Yeah. Share some uh, security information with us. Stephen Leo, you were discussing the false base station attacks on mobiles in the last show. And actually, since the last show, there's been a lot of news about there being lots of fake cell towers out there. For all, I don't know why, but apparently they're, they're not uncommon. He says, I was involved in the design of the security for 3G networks. You can actually see the spec at 3GPP.org. And yes, the original 2G SIM authentication protocol is one way. The network authenticates the mobile station, but the mobile station cannot verify the network. But I should tell you, we, it was updated with the work on the 3G spec and the transition to the USIM. So if you're using a USIM on a 3G network or later, the phone will authenticate the network. But as phones have to work seamlessly on 2G networks, unless, oh, here's the, uh, here's the unless, unless you have specifically set your phone to only use 3G networks and you have a USIM from your network operator, it's still subject to these attacks. And that's, I bet you, that's rare. Yeah, yep. One of the things, it's certainly not the default. One of the things in the spec, it says that the phone must show an indicator when the secure connection is not enabled. This is known as the Authentication and Key Agreement, or AKA protocol. This is universally ignored. <laughs> and there are hardly any phones that show this, despite the fact that the spec says they're supposed to. If this were enabled, it would be a good indicator that you were not on the network you think you're on. The reason this is ignored is that, well, operators don't want the support calls they'd get if there were problems and have to switch encryption off, which they do surprisingly often. Although it's not possible to tell if your phone is connected to such a rogue base station, the presence of these shows up to the network operator because of a spike in handover fails as nearby phones try to hand over established calls to the false base station. Keep up the great podcast, Stuart Redding, UK. Fabulous, fabulous wow. information, Love Stuart. That. And and this is the classic um, protocol version downgrade attack, where where the attacker arranges to cause you to use to debate to, to basically use an older protocol by by making the newer secure one unavailable and so the device falls back we've talked about this in in ssl all the time that was a classic attack in in fact there's even an ssl that does no encryption and there were early clients that that if the server said no i don't i don't support encryption the client said oh too bad well let's talk anyway and so you, you know you thought you were using SSL, but it had null. It had a null cipher, as it was called. In this case, um, the the base stations only advertise 2D. Um, yeah, t uh, I'm sorry, 2G support because they, if they were to do 3G, they 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 there's a chance that the phone would try to authenticate them and they would fail that authentication because they're not actually AT&T or you know Verizon or whomever so they just say no no we have 2G here 
And the phone says, oh, well, okay, I guess that's all I can get. And since it's a, they're broadcasting a stronger signal and that you're closer to them than you are to the authentic tower, your phone chooses to go 2G. You wouldn't be able wow. to make phone calls either, right? I mean, are, are these rogue oh, towers? No, you are. You are because they knit your connection. Ah. They're able to make a 3D, a 3G connection out to the cell tower, but you connect to them, and that allows them to intercept and 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 have complete access to your decrypted conversation and texts. So then you wouldn't? Would you, oh, I guess you would get a failed handover, handoff because there isn't a real handoff. Exactly. Because normally you're yeah. going from one AT&T tower to yeah. the next. And so they're able to negotiate you here. You leave there right. and go to, you know, outside of its range. And suddenly your phone saying, hey, um, I'm taking this conversation over to here. And and the here says, huh? Right. I don't know what you're right. talking about. There's nowhere there. There's no here there. Right. <laughs> There's no here there. Right. Ed Killian, Coldbrook, New York. He's going to ask us a little bit about Apple's SSD insecure erase. This is a top, another one of those topics like uh, ground differentials and Ethernet <laughs> that just goes and on it, and on and on. And, but people care about it because well, they want to know. There's, yeah. And I have been lately saying if you're using SSD, turn on encryption now. But right. Well, we'll find out what Steve says. But first, a word from ZipRecruiter.com. Here's the problem. Nowadays, it's really easy to post a job listing. There are 50-plus job boards out there waiting for you to post a listing. And that means there are millions of job seekers out there waiting for your listing. But which board's the right board? Some boards are better for engineers. Some boards are better for surface personnel. You don't know. So ZipRecruiter solves that problem in a very clever way. You post once to ZipRecruiter.com, and then they post to 50-plus job boards on your behalf not just job boards but also social networks like linkedin and facebook and twitter of course craigslist and monster everywhere that you want to be you post once your listing goes up and uh, instantly you're going to start getting resumes and feedback what's nice is ZipRecruiter makes that easier for you they will automatically rank candidates for you uh, help you screen them, rate them, and hire the right person fast. It's also easy for the job seeker. They've got mobile interface that makes it easy for them to look for a, look for a new job. ZipRecruiter is just a great way to, you know, this is what the Internet's all about, eliminating friction in markets. ZipRecruiter's that. It eliminates frictions in the job market. Plus, you're going to get a customized, branded jobs and careers page for your website. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by over a quarter of a million businesses, including Twit, I might add. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for a free four-day trial. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. Free trial and waiting. ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. Such a good idea. And great people who provide premium support whenever you need it. Plus 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. Post your job free for the next four days. ZipRecruiter.com. We thank them so much for their support of security now. We've got more questions. Steve's got more answers. We'll go to Ed Killian's question next from Cold Brook, New York. Love the show, even though, even though I've only been, li only been listening for two years. 
Well, we are in our ninth year, so where have you been all my life, huh? Hi to Leo, whom I loved on Screensavers and does a fantastic job now. I had to read that. Sorry, Steve. I have three. <laughs> why, that's why I put it there. That's what he Thank wrote. You. I, 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 get I have three Mac Airbooks, and I'm putting uh, him into storage. Therefore, I want to erase the hard drives. I've booted from an external Mac OS 10 10.9 install disk. Actually, it's a USB disk, USB drive. Uh, I run disk utility to erase the drive. I select the internal Apple SSD, the TS128B hard drive. Then I hover the mouse over the security options button, and it's grayed out. It mm. says secure erase not available on this type of drive. Makes me wonder, how are they erasing it and how secure it is? Well, I, you know what? I got to give a little credit to Apple for, um, for saying that. I didn't know they did that. That's nice. Yeah. And the, an the answer is it's not actually what we think of as an SSD. It's enough of the of the the ATA specification that it looks like a drive but it's you know we know that it's not a boxed drive that Apple got from Seagate or something mm -mm. it's a couple of little black chips on the motherboard <laughs> yeah you know it's highly integrated their costs are nothing and so what they did is they they created enough of a drive to to have it work but so it doesn't it's not a full a full rendition of the of the ATA spec cuz Apple just does doesn't need one for their own purposes. So it, it looks, you know, it, it obeys the commands. Spinrite will be able to run on it. Apple runs on it. You know, uh, the the various virtual machines, or the, the, you can even run Windows, as we know, on a, 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 on a on, on a MacBook Air. It makes a great hardware platform. So it's it's enough of a, of the drive to do the job, but it's missing the secure erase feature. It's just not part of what Apple implemented for their own embedded drive technology. So it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we've, and we've talked about this in the past, that really there isn't a, a guaranteed secure race for SSD. No, it's just that, you know, somebody said, hey, you know, they were writing the firmware for their own implementation of what we call an SSD. It is a solid state drive, right. but Apple just made it up. It's not, you know, it's not commercially available like I the see. boxes we, we buy and plug in. It's just but, a couple little chips on the board. See, I thought this was more about the issue, which we've talked about before, that it isn't really possible to 100% securely erase solid state disks. What we really need, and it's not part of the spec because... Drives are still pretending to be perfect, and they're pretending to manage themselves. We need an interface to the to the EEPROM con yeah. to the controller itself, yeah. right? Yeah. Where like we can look at the mapping table, or we could zero the mapping table and say, you know, bring it all back, or swap these right. in so we can erase them, or say, you know, have the ability to know when we say erase everything, it's erasing everything. And instead, they're just saying, ah, we, we don't have that feature. It's because where leveling intervenes, right, between your Correct. view of the drive and what's actually happening. Right. And what we need is to be built the ability to programmatically penetrate right. the where leveling abstraction, because that's an abstraction. We're, we're looking at a subset of the actual drive, and we need to say, ah, no, give us access to the whole thing just for the moment. Having said that, if you do an erase on a SSD, you're mostly getting the data. 
right? You really are. Right? So yes. There might be slack space that's not erased or like or indiv some individual sectors that get overlooked because we can't really see which sectors are used. But for the most part, you're zeroing it out. Well, and this is why the, the, the really good advice is what you referred to earlier, which is turn on encryption before you put anything yeah. of yours on the drive. Right. Because then it's noise which is recorded, even if that noise gets swapped off because it because of a wear leveling need, it's it's like it doesn't matter. It's just pseudo random junk. And then when you wipe your keys from the drive, nobody can ever access it. It's a small leak, but it's a still a leak. So if you yeah. it, and this is by the way true on your phone, because that's yes. using solid state memory. Um, so when I get a new phone, I'm going to get the new iPhone. The first thing I do is. Before I put any personal date on it, as I turn on encryption, <laughs> you and I are both going to be up at midnight on Friday night, my friend. We are, or, or I guess you know, twelve oh one Saturday yeah. morning. Yeah, Wait, is it California is it Friday time. morning? Friday morning. Friday or morning. Saturday morning. It's Friday morning. Thursday. Friday. So Thursday night. Okay. Yeah, don't miss it because you'll be screwed. <laughs> oh, and especially because you want the, the and I both we both want the six plus the big one. Everybody, everybody, that's the one. I, I don't think they're going to sell any of the four point sevens. Isn't that interesting? I, that will be telling. What was the? It was a hundred dollars cheaper for the smaller screen. Well, with Did contracts, they, they didn't tell us what the off contract prices. Oh, were. okay. So it's two hundred. The usual off contract price for an iPhone six, two ninety nine for the iPhone six plus. With 64 gigs of RAM, which, you know what? People are buying too much, not RAM, uh, storage. People are buying too much storage. I agree with you. I, it's hard to imagine what you could do with 128 gig. It's like 128 gig. That's so you never have to ever erase a picture or a video ever again. <laughs> Please don't. And you know. if you think your iCloud storage is full oh, now, Lord. just wait till you start having multiple 128 <laughs> gig blobs carrying around. Well, to yeah. their credit, they did drop the uh, cost of iCloud storage to uh, $10 a month for a terabyte. I'm sorry, $20 yeah, a want... month for a terabyte. But oh, I don't okay. want to. No, I'm, I'm, no. 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 Chris White, Charleston, South Carolina. He's puzzled. As am I, so I'm glad he asked this question. <laughs> By perfect forward security, in your most recent episode, you describe perfect forward security as being unbreakable should the keys ever be compromised. I've been racking my brain trying to imagine any encryption that could accomplish this feat. The only thing I can come up with is some sort of pre-shared nonce that must be combined with the encrypted one-time key to decrypt successfully, but yeah, I don't know. Even that could be compromised. The only way to be completely sure... In the case of compromised keys, would be to add a time-based component. And that doesn't sound trivial for email. As you may guess, I'm pretty much a novice at this stuff. You and me both. So there's probably something simple I'm missing. Can you fill in the gap? And thanks for all the great work you do with security now because of you. Whenever the conversation turns to digital security, quite often lately, I'm informed and stay up to date. How do okay, it well, work? I, I love the question because clearly Chris cares enough to have really thought about this. Yeah. I mean, he sat there and he's like, how can you how arrange? Yes. Yes. And so um, the secret is something known as a key negotiation where the two endpoints are able to, in real time, exchange some data with each other. And the trick is... 
because this could be happening where there's an eavesdropper, they need to be able to do it in plain sight. Meaning that, the, so imagine a protocol where the two ends are going to send each other some information such that when they each receive it, they're able to both arrive at a at the same secret from what they exchanged, yet the person watching that, even if they, like, capture the data going by that they each sent to each other, that person in the middle can't figure out either of the can't figure out the key that they have now agreed upon through this key agreement protocol it is it's diabolically clever it uses the fact that if you take a number and you raise it to say we'll we'll take uh well in in crypto parlance it's called the generator so we'll call it g and you raise that to the power of A, and you raise that to the power of B, that's that you get the same answer, the same result, as if you take the same generator and raise that to the power of B, and then raise that to the power of A. In other, in, in other words, the order in which you you exponentiate something doesn't matter it's commutative um so so the secret here is that and then we add one more twist and that is we do this in what's called a, a again the fancy term is a finite field and what that what that really means is that we're not just gonna we're not gonna take g, this g to the power of a to the power of b which could be like this ridiculously huge number Instead, we do we take that answer mod something, as in modulus, which really just means we divide that by another number, and all we keep is the remainder. And it turns out that even adding the modulus, and this is really where it, this is the trick, adding the modulus where all we keep is the remainder, all the math still works. Yet in in sending just the remainder to the other to the other end we're not giving away the the answer we're we're sort of we're only disclosing um sort of a piece of it and it turns out then that what each end is sending is so 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 side a takes this generator which can be publicly known and is normally just standardized. And they, um, the first side comes up with a random number. We'll call that A. So they, they take this generator to the power of A and then do modulus to, again, another agreed-upon number that can be publicly known. Then that gives them this remainder. They send that to, this, to side B. And at the same time, side B has, in, have, has come up with its own random number, done the same thing, raised G to the power of B, and then take that mod whatever 
and they send that remainder to the first side. Then each side raises their value to the remainder the other side sent, and they arrive at the same number. Yet all the person in the middle sees is these two remainders going back and forth from the mod operation, which tells them nothing. So it's just, it's genius. Uh, Diffie, uh, Whit Diffie and, and Richard Hellman, who I actually knew and met at the AI lab at Stanford back in 73, they invented this, the so-called Diffie-Hellman key exchange protocol. Uh, and if you want to see it, there's some nice pictures that Wikipedia has that, that describes this further, Chris. Um, but I think you probably got the hang of it. And just, it's brilliant. And this is the way we do um, uh, ephemeral key negotiation on the fly such that um, it doesn't matter if someone catches our encryption that was used to authenticate the ends, they don't get the encryption key because that was negotiated on the fly, even in plain sight. Question eight from Richard Warner in Bedford. With a lot of English folks calling us and writing us. He worries that he might be wearing out his iPad's flash. A thought came into my head whilst out running this evening. I have a 64-gig iPad, which has about 6 gigs free with, with all the apps and stuff. Most of this is static, never changes. Now, I listen to several podcasts every day, and most are videos. So my 6 gigs free is constantly being written to when I download in the morning and then deleted from during the day. This obviously repeats every day. I know Flash RAM is fine to read from repeatedly, but not write to. He's It's actually not Flash RAM, it's NAND. Is The question is, when I'm using the 6 gigs of Flash, am I going to wear it out prematurely because uh, it's my only usable storage? If so, what can I do? Should I be worried? Regards, Richard. Okay, so this is sort of an interesting question. I, question. I liked I liked the way he thought about it because he's saying, I've got 64 gigs, but 58 of it is full and never changes. Well, except that apps are being updated with frightening regularity. But uh, but so that leaves six gig free. And he's he's listening to podcasts. And so that little free space is being written and written and written and written and written all the time compared to the bulk of it that's not being written. So is he going to burn that out? And the answer is, well... Maybe your great, great, great grandchildren would have a problem if they're still listening to podcasts and recycling that little corner of the the um, the flash memory. It's a matter of scale because generally we're talking about on the order of ten thousand writes, and if you're doing one write per day, that's ten thousand days. Other stuff going to wear out sooner than that. Uh, your body is yeah. going to wear out sooner than that. <laughs> well, no, that's so, only like 30 years. That's not, a, that's not an infinite Oh, okay. Of time. Yeah. Well, we don't know how old Richard is, but I take your point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and of course, then we add to that, that as the flash, because of this problem, as bits wear out, they'll be taken out of service and new fresh little regions get brought in the so-called wear leveling is happening. So, and actually that's, that's the other side of this is even though you're seeing 
a small portion that appears to be written over and over and over, what where leveling is, is the deliberate spreading of the rights out across the entire region of the drive. So the drive could take some of the data that isn't being written often and put that over on an often written area, freeing up the unoften written area, which will then get some writing to it. It it levels it out so that so that hot spots like exactly like Richard is describing aren't a problem. Although in general, this is really only a concern if you are using that that solid state drive as like your main drive in your PC where you're just thrashing on it all the time. I mean, our, our hard drives never stop. You know, they're bis- busy doing something all but the time. It is possible to overthrash it, right? I mean, didn't Ma- Ma- well, yeah, Mark for, Thompson for, use Swamp file or something? Yes. At, 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 in order to do an experiment, he he used an an, an SSD flash drive that that rem- remember the but these were the early ones. Factor that was yes yeah. that, that was a square, and he set it up as his as his swap file, and it just swapped it to death. Yeah. I think it lasted a matter of hours, and wow. it was you know toast. But this is but not so, that, that thrashing. Yeah, of. and and we've had we've had a lot of progress in technology since then, and the wear leveling really does solve the problem and the fact that 10,000 rights is actually a lot when you consider you know like like a podcast is changing in that region yeah yeah i've not you know i, I i've never i use ssd and everything now right they i don't have don't spinning die. drives and i have yet to have a problem they may yep. be more robust we'll see but they may be more robust than spinning drives the only problem I – and this is, of course, I have a bias because I hear about people with problems right. – is that they, they sometimes just com- spontaneously die. Well, yeah. Is hard, hard drives tend to creak for a while right. and get cranky and, and slow down. And then, I mean, they give you some clues and some, like, some ability to, like, kick yourself for not responding to those clues yeah. more yeah. <laughs> sooner, whereas SSDs just suddenly oh, – I'm now a black piece of plastic. Well, and I have had a flash memory die for cameras, and that's exactly right. right. It just stops working. Right. That's it. One day it works, one day it doesn't. <laughs> it's just, I'm it. not memory anymore. No, nope. I'm just a piece of black plastic. <laughs> yep. Freddie in Stafford, Virginia. He was thinking about those security questions that we talk about all the time. And, in fact, that uh, Apple says we're part of the flaw that uh, allowed the uh, nude pictures to be stolen from iCloud. Stephen Leo, while listening to the podcast on the celebrity nude photo compromise, it struck me that it wouldn't wouldn't it be fairly simple to modify the standard mother's maiden name pet questions to ones that each person decides for themselves and enters the answers. That'll eliminate a lot of the pre-attack social engineering research. Some sites do that. Good sites do that. Yep, I've seen the same thing. Yeah. And but when I when I read this, I was put in mind of a recent comment you made. On one of the podcasts, and not might have might have been Twit on Sunday. I don't remember when it Several was. Several times I've said this, but but your advice was, and this is why I, I I wanted to use this question: is absolutely never tell the truth. Right, just lie. Yeah, um, you do need to record your lies. Right. Um, maybe you could always use the same lie, but it's that's as dangerous as using the same password on other sites. You'd really like to do per site lies which means you then need per site records of yeah. your 
fabrications. As you already have uh, but, with your password manager. manager. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and the problem, I think the reason more sites don't allow you to make up your own question is it's going to confuse some people. And, you know, apparently they've got problems with their databases as it is. And so, you know, adding fields of, of you know, arbitrary length questions that you, they solicit from people, uh, that seems to be beyond them. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, the point of these is to give you a way to authenticate if you forget your password. Right. And sometimes they use the equally crappy method of what are the last four digits of your social. Uh, I just recently was authenticated using my mother's birthday. Another terrible. And by oh. the way, that wasn't something I chose. That's just what they use. Yeah, or your favorite teacher, you know, is yeah. a favorite one. Oh, yeah, I mean, I yeah. guess pet's name is like so cliche now right. that they're embarrassed to still but ask that. Is there a <laughs> way that you could do this, you know, kind of backup authentication? I guess there is. That's what the, that's what Google does with your smartphone. You give it a smartphone phone number in case, you know, somebody steals your stuff and you say, you know, don't, you know, you can't can't verify it using my email. Call me. Yes. That's a good way to do it. Yes. You call me. Yeah. Yeah. Frank in Munich figured out. Well, I was just going to say, the other beauty of that is then if someone is trying to hack your account, you get a you I get, get a, a phone call. And it's like, uh, wait a minute. It's too yeah. expensive. It's too ah. expensive. Ah. Frank in Munich figured out the free CA that was dropped from Firefox. I'm guessing... When you were originally talking about start SSL, you were thinking about these guys, cacert.org. The moment I saw that, it's like, oh, yes, that is what I was thinking of. And on their inclusion status page, this is just sort of a nice, well-meaning, small certificate authority that's sort of trying to get themselves going. Lots of people don't support them. That is, don't have their root certificate. FreeBSD doesn't. Safari uh, has it under uh, under advisement or consideration or something. Firefox has it marked red as like, uh, uh, no, we're, we're not going to do And that's that's when I, the moment. So thank you, Frank. You solved the mystery. I was, you know, I kept talking about it on the podcast. It's like, I'm sure. Sure, I saw that somebody, you know, like Mozilla was going to stop supporting something. It's like, yep, that's that's the. And so these guys are like, you know, just they're they're well-meaning, but they're not providing much authentication, and none of the browsers want to to honor their certificates. So they're kind of having a tough time. But the mystery solved. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, last question. Kind of sad. <laughs> well, considering that it's four in the afternoon, I think we're yeah. we're on track. TN2 here. coming up for those of you tuning in before you buy. I'll be right after Tech News tonight. And there's a big breaking story on Tech News tonight that is not yeah. Apple. Ooh. Brent in Canada, I'll just I'll leave it at that. Brent in Canada suggests that zip codes make a lousy two-factor second factor. Steve, I live in Canada. Uh we don't have five-digit zips. We use a six-digit postal code actually it's a, it alternates between letters and digits uk uh, similar i frequently yep. visit the u.s and often run into gas pumps that require a five-digit zip code when i do i always have to go inside and the attendant swipes my card manually to avoid the need for a zip code seems it's pretty easy to bypass this as a second factor it also shows why zip codes may not be useful as a universal second factor perhaps a phone number well okay so 
this was sort of interesting because we actually use this, this to identify Canadians who visit the United States. I just <laughs> <laughs> um, this sort of this is, I think, the wrong way to think about this. the The idea is that we we're looking for something that will prevent fraud at the gas pump, and Zipco does that. I mean, it's not perfect. But specifically, the bad guys don't want to go in and present their card because, you know, the, the attendant might ask, right. for, you know, to see to see their ID. And so the whole point of this being at the pump is that it's a it's a very well-known way for for people who have stolen a credit card to check to see whether it's still good or not. And they get some gas in the bargain. Um and this just stops them cold because they typically this is something they don't know, and so yes, a phone number I guess, but phone number seems a little more too personal to 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 be used. I'm not sure you want to be entering your phone number. Where's the zip code? You know, the, the point being, your phone number identifies you uniquely. The zip code doesn't identify you, yet it's still something no thief can guess. They're, you know, they're just not going to know what the zip code is. So, so I, I like this as a second factor in that setting. It's certainly not universal, uh, but uh, it's it's uh, you know it does the job. Yeah, exactly. Yep, and it also helps us identify Canadians <laughs> <laughs> and other foreigners. No, I'm That's kidding. Right. I'm kidding. I love Canadians. You know I love Canadians. I know where Moncton, New the, Brunswick think is. Of the, think of the keyboard we'd have to have on the gas pump if we were going <laughs> to just let people, you know, put in their wacky Canadian zip codes. <laughs> hey, Steve, what fun. As always, Steve Gibson is the man in charge of the Gibson Research Corporation and absolutely our security guru everywhere in this building. I mean, it was great seeing you on this weekend, uh, Enterprise Tech, yesterday. It's yeah, nice to have a go-to guy that we can, you know, just say, hey, Steve, what's the story? And you tell us. Um, next week, what are we, we're going to do, what did you say? I think we're going to, I want to do a deep dive, uh, you know, industry willing, into the, the, the controversy surrounding Google's unilateral decision to start to put pressure on SHA-1 certificates well in advance yeah. of like everyone else in the industry's feeling for when we should stop honoring them. We've sort of agreed uh, 2017. Uh, Chrome wants to do it in two months. Google's a very take-charge kind of company. They're definitely... <laughs> they're, they're using definitely their cloud. Stirred, they're stirring it up lately, yes. If you want to get uh, the uh, transcripts of the show, Steve has them. Really nice transcripts written by a human, Elaine Ferris. At GRC.com. He also has 16 kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired. You'll find uh, lots of other great stuff at GRC, including Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and Steve's bread and butter. So buy a copy. Come on. You'll also, uh, if you go there, be able Keeps to ask. the wheels turning over at this end. Yeah. If you want to ask questions for future feedback episodes, you can do that at GRC.com slash feedback. Please don't send email to either me or Steve. We're far too busy playing uh, Minecraft to answer your email. 
And uh, <laughs> I'm busy writing scroll. Oh, yeah, that, and oh, then that's back, what you're doing. Back, then back to the next version of Spinrite. But point taken. Something point like taken. that. Anyway, yeah. uh, we have audio and video full quality at our website, twit.tv slash SN. And you can also subscribe wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, like iTunes or use the apps. We've got lots of them, Stitcher, that kind of thing. It's easy to find us. This is the number one security podcast in the world. I don't think you'll have any trouble. Now, nine years in the making. We're in our 10th year. Actually. Yeah, 10th year. Yeah, because we had our ninth birthday. So we're in our 10th year. Wow. Woohoo. Thank you, Steve Arino. See you next week. Okay, my friend. Righto. Security.